Great is thy faithfulness. God promised to send a Savior, and he did. And uh, what a blessing he is to us. <clears throat> we are continuing our study in Matthew. Last Sunday, we studied the biblical record of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And just to remind us of the events, uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning when Judas came with a large armed multitude to arrest Jesus. Judas <clears throat> betrayed the Lord with a kiss. That sign signaled the Roman cohort to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said to them at that time, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The night was cold and dark. The demonic forces of darkness seized the opportunity to kill Jesus. The Bible says that Satan comes to kill and to destroy. That's his purpose. That's what he does. And Judas was already possessed by the devil himself, and he was acting out every evil desire of the devil and the principalities and the powers of darkness. Jesus was seized in the garden, and he was taken to trial uh, to be tried by the religious and civil leaders at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., somewhere in that range. This is ridiculous that a court case is taking place at this time in the morning. Now, it may uh, help you to understand that Jesus was about to face not one, but six trials, three religious trials and three civil trials. And today, we are only going to look at the religious trials um, that Jesus faced before the religious leaders. So on this chart, you'll see them broken down. The first three trials are religious trials. And um, the first one is before Annas, then before Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. Then, after they're finished... Jesus is sent to the civil authorities, and he has a trial before Pilate, then before Herod, and then back again with Pilate. We begin this morning, not in Matthew, but in John, because John, John's gospel is the only gospel that tells us about the first trial. The others don't talk about the first trial. They go right to the second trial or third trial. Uh, or second and third trial, but uh, John is the only one who tells us about the first trial. And so we're going to begin there in John chapter 18, and let's read verses 12 through 14. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So John sets the stage for us in this first trial. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is bound. He is taken to Annas. Who is Annas? Annas was actually the former 
high priest. Um, this is the first religious trial, but let's talk about Annas and his family for just a minute. So we have a chart. I don't know if you can see that very well. Uh, first of all, you have Annas is the high priest, and he was high priest from 6 AD, whoops, 6 AD to 15 AD. Um, he was actually appointed by the Roman government, and he was deposed by the Roman government. And then if you see over here on this side, the next person to, um, to be the high priest was his son, Eleazar. Uh, he lasted for two years, then he was taken out of office. And then if you look way over to the other side, you notice 36, 37, 42, and so on. These are all sons or grandsons of Annas. They, they actually are high priests later in history. But at the time of Jesus' uh, trials, we are actually dealing, he's dealing with Caiaphas, who is the high priest, and he's the son-in-law of Annas. So Annas had been the high priest from 6 to 15. He was removed. Annas' son-in-law Caiaphas is now the high priest. And um, I want you to think about this for just a minute. <clears throat> Remember in the Old Testament that it was God who established the high priest uh, ministry. And the high priest was to represent the people of Israel before God. It was the high priest who ministered in the tabernacle or, or later ministered in the temple. It was the high priest uh, who went into the holiest of holies with a blood sacrifice once a year, which he offered for himself and for the people, for the sins of the people. We read that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. His job was to be holy. His job was to represent holiness to the Lord. But Annas and his sons were corrupt. Annas was a terrible example to the uh, people of Israel. He did not represent God's holy standards. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, he seems to have been arrogant, astute, ambitious, and enormously wealthy. He and his family were proverbial for their rapacity and greed. The Israelites, you will remember, uh, were, when they sinned, they were to bring sacrificial animals that were without spot, without blemish, to be sacrificed to the Lord as a covering for their sins. It didn't take away their sins, but there was a it was a temporary covering until the cross. Um, when they brought their own animals, they looked over their animals, and they were perfect as far as they could tell, and they brought them to the temple. But when they got to the temple, the um, uh, Annas and his family members uh, would reject the sacrifices, and they would require the people to buy animals that the priest's family was selling. So when you think about them going to the temple to offer sacrifices to worship the Lord, they get there and the religious leader at the time, the high priest, 
And his own family say, no, we won't accept these as sacrifices. If you're going to sacrifice to the Lord, you have to sacrifice an approved animal. And you can buy that uh, from us right here at the temple. We'll take your sacrifice or your animal, but you have to buy one of the approved animals that are here. Well, suppose they didn't have an animal. Instead, they brought money. That was another alternative. You could bring money to sacrifice or worship the Lord or offer to the Lord. And so if they bring money, they were Roman coins and they would get to the temple and they would come to the temple and they say, oh, no, 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 you can't offer uh, money that has the picture of the Roman governor on it or something like that. That's, that's offensive to offer to God something like that. But we have a substitute. You can buy Jewish coins just over there at the money changer tables. And so this was the, their method of um, exchanging, the, the, exchanging money, uh, taking the Roman real money, giving them the Jewish coins that were approved. And of course, there was a markup on all of this. Um, there was a, the, the money changer tables. Uh, they were extorting the people is really what they were doing. And so... Uh, the exchange rate was a ripoff. The sacrificial animals were sold at exorbitant prices. And it was this way, in this way that Annas and his family, the ones who were to represent God before the people, were ripping people off and making a small fortune from the sacrifices. This was nothing, there was nothing spiritual about what they were doing at all. They were robbing the people of God in the time of worship. Their profit was derived from what Albert, uh, Alfred Edersheim writes, the booths of the sons of Annas. Some, uh, he also calls them the bazaar of Annas. So they were the ones who set up the booths. They were the one who set up the tables in the temple. And you remember at both the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry, he went into the, te the temple, to the courtyard of the temple, and he saw the money changer tables, and he saw the merchandising of sacrifices, and he overturned the money changers tables, and he made a whip, and he drove them out with all the animals that they had, and he said that it was wrong for them to turn God's house, the Father's house, uh, which was meant as a house of prayer, into a, a house of merchandise. Um, and so it was a den of robbers, actually, is what he called it in Mark 11. Jesus' actions were in direct opposition to Annas, the high priest, the former high priest, who was the head of this racketeering, this corruption. He had turned the ministry God gave him into a profit-making machine. He led his family in prosperity doctrine, um, profiting from the people of God. And so the first trial began with Annas, the former high priest. He is still referred to in the scripture at this time as high priest. And the way I look at it, it's, it's similar to what we do with the American presidents. So we don't say Mr. Clinton, Mr. Uh, Obama. We say, even now, we would call them President Clinton, President Obama. Um, that title remains with them until they die. And that's true of the high priest as well. So even though he wasn't officially the high priest 
at that time, he still uh, retained the title. In fact, um, not only the title, but he had quite a, a great amount of authority because he's the head of his family, and he's kind of the one ruling over what's going on. So he's taken to Annas first, and this trial is to determine facts about Jesus and his disciples. So let's read the passage in John 18, verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I have said. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, I'm going to pause here for just a minute and explain something to you that everything that you see here in this trial, the first trial, and everything that we're going to see over the next uh, six trials is illegal. Okay, this is not legal what they are doing for many, many reasons. And I want to point out some of those reasons to you. Jesus' trial was illegal. And so here are some of the uh, illegal actions that took place under Jewish law. First of all, when Jesus was arrested, there were no charges filed against him. Yet he was arrested and he's already in trial. No charges have been levied against him. In fact, they're, they're on a fishing expedition. They're trying to get charges, trumped up charges, to uh, lay against him, but they have none. Secondly, trials were forbidden during Jewish feast time. What was taking place at this time? The Passover. It was a feast. If this is illegal to take... Uh, to. Uh, conduct a trial during the feast of the Passover. Third, no trial was to be held at night. No trial was to be held in secret. But this trial began at about 3 a.m. The Bible tells us, and Jewish law confirms this, that a capital offense, an offense that requires the death sentence, requires the testimony in the mouths of two or three witnesses. They have no witnesses at this trial. When they do finally bring witnesses, we're going to see that in the later trials, they can't even agree with each other. Next, you'll see as we go through this that the witnesses themselves were never put under oath. It is not sworn testimony, what they say. Think about this in the United States. Um, if a person is arrested in the U.S. and is taken to jail, he is to be read his, what kind of rights? Miranda rights, okay? There was a case 
with a man named Miranda, Miranda against Arizona, who uh, had done some very wicked things. But he apparently got off because his rights were not read, and forever they've been known as the Miranda rights. Um, you've heard this on uh, police TV shows or in movies. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. How many of you have heard those Miranda rights before? Okay, pretty much all of you, okay? And um, you may have even heard somebody in a courtroom setting who is asked a question that would incriminate themselves, and they say, I plead what? The fifth, okay? So the Miranda rights are actually, there's nothing new about them. It, it wasn't, they weren't invented uh, in that case with Miranda versus Arizona. They are in the Bill of Rights, okay? And the fifth um, amendment to the Constitution uh, protects a person from self-incrimination. You cannot be forced, even today in court, to testify against yourself, okay? I plead the fifth. Now, when people do that, they go, oh, well, he's guilty then. <laughs> but no, it's, a, it's the law. You, you, can, you don't have to incriminate yourself. The same type of law applied to Jesus, but they didn't follow it. The accused uh, was not to be asked self-incriminating questions, but Jesus was. The accused was to be given counsel or representation, but Jesus had none. That's actually our sixth amendment. And as we consider the rest of the trials after the, uh, when we get to the civil trials, you'll also notice that we're, other illegal actions were taken against Jesus. Um, well, actually in the uh, religious trial as well. Each member of the court was to vote individually to convict or to acquit. No individual vote was taken during this time, but rather Jesus was convicted by acclamation. In other words, everybody just say, oh yeah, he's guilty, okay? There's an interesting law. Well, let me go back. I'll get to that in a minute. If the death penalty was given, Jewish law required that they did not impose the death penalty that day. Instead, they were to go, all, all of the judges were to go away for a day and a night, and they were to um, think about their vote meditate on it, and then come back the next day with an answer. And they were even allowed to change their answer the next day. Next, the Jews had no authority to execute anyone. So ultimately, they made up charges to bring his case before civil authorities. Now, there is a very unusual law, uh, Jewish law, that says something like this. If the entire body unanimously convicts, then the person goes free. You go, what? Okay. And there was a reason for that. Um, if there was a unanimous verdict of guilty, and it, resulted, it, it actually resulted in an acquittal of the defendant, 
This practice was from the court's duty to protect and defend the accused. So the court was not there to try to bring about conviction, but rather to see if there was any way of getting off the charges. That was their duty. And so they looked at it that if everybody uh, ganged up and there was a unanimous vote, it had to be a conspiracy. And which, of course, there was. And so it's just an interesting, unusual part of the law. This was really a kangaroo court where due process was thrown out the window and all standards of law and justice and fairness were ignored so that they could come to a predetermined conclusion. Jesus must die. That, that was it. So that's the end of the first trial. And uh, next, uh, Annas sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas. And so we come now to the second religious trial before Caiaphas, the current high priest, the son-in-law of Annas. Now, I'm going to stop here for just a second. If you noticed in uh, John 18, 14, we read this. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. It's an interesting statement that Caiaphas should make, uh, should say this. Now he didn't say it at the trial. He actually said it many chapters before the trial, back in John chapter 11. Although Caiaphas was not God's man morally or spiritually, he was officially the high priest. He was God's man officially. And he was God's man to speak his word before the people. And Caiaphas, probably unknown to him, in fact, I do know it was unknown to him, he prophesied the truth about Jesus' death. He declared that his death would be a substitutionary death. His death would be instead of the nation perishing. His death would be for you. His death would be for me. And it may surprise you that God used a man like Caiaphas to utter such a truth. But remember, God once used a donkey to speak too. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we read in John chapter 11, verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. What things did Jesus do? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And one of them... Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he said, um, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, 
but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. This is an amazing prophecy. The prophecy is that um, Jesus would die instead of the whole nation of Israel. Jesus would die instead of entire other nations. Jesus would die so that I would not have to die. Jesus would die so that you would not have to die. This is the this is the uh, foundation of sub- the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, that he would die in place of others. Amazing prophecy. And like I said, he was not a righteous man, but God spoke, to, spoke through him, just like God spoke through that donkey so many years before. Caiaphas was speaking on God's authority that Jesus would be the substitute for sinners, not just the Jewish nation, but Gentiles as well who were scattered abroad. It's a, it's a beautiful nugget tucked right in the middle of this trial, and John is just re-emphasizing it to say, hey, what is happening here? This is the beginning of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus um, on the cross for you. All right. Let's go now to um, Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to read what happens at the second trial. Matthew 26, 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? So Mark also adds a similar account, some differences, we'll, we'll see, point them out as we go. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. This is uh, Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So what we have here is the second trial is underway. They're looking for some way to charge him. They're they're bribing people to come forward and say something against Jesus. And people come forward and say things, but they're not true, and they don't agree, 
they throw out that testimony. Finally, two people come together and say something similar, but they're not the same. Um, they couldn't even agree. One reported that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So it's, remember, the temple of God is built. It's in Jerusalem. And it's like they were saying Jesus was pointing to that temple and said, I'm going to destroy that temple and then I'm going to rebuild it in three days. That was the testimony. The other one said, um, that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made by hands and within three days, I will build another temple without hands. It's a magic trick, okay? That's essentially their testimony. They don't even agree. That's the best they could do. Problem is, Jesus never made that claim. He never said that. Jesus never claimed that he would destroy the temple, the building. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple at the beginning of his ministry, they, they asked Jesus to provide them with a sign, some proof that he had the authority to challenge the status quo, to challenge Annas, to challenge Annas's sons in this Annas's bazaar. Jesus actually said, what he actually said is recorded in John chapter 2. Jesus answered and said to them, not destroy this temple, destroy this temple, his body. That's what he was referring to. How do I know that? Well, let's read on. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it is taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what the scripture says. And he made it very clear to them. They were not listening. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. But it was his prophecy of what was going to happen to him. His death and his resurrection three days later. And it wasn't Jesus who would destroy his body. They would destroy his body and he would raise it again in three days. And that would be a sure sign that he was who he said he was and that he had authority to cleanse the temple, his father's house. But these false witnesses made him out to be a terrorist of, of, of a kind. It was false testimony. Now, we will see next that Jesus did not respond to this false testimony, the false accusations. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was not going to answer false testimony. In Matthew 26, verse 63, we read, But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. 
Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? He was silent before the false witnesses. Then he was put under oath, and under oath he was required to answer. The question was, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now some people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Wrong. He is making that claim under oath to the living God. Are you the Son of God? Jesus said, it is as you say. That is a direct statement of deity from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the high priest understands that. That's why he tore his robe. That's why he tore his clothes, being convinced that Jesus had just uttered blasphemy and he sentenced him to death. And then all of them joined in with the accusation and spitting in his face, slapping him across the face and mocking him. Now in Mark uh, 14, verses 60 through 65, we read this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Who is the blessed? God the Father, the great I Am. Jesus said, I am. That is a declaration of his deity. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus warned them that the next time they see him, they will see him in glory. They will see him seated at the right hand of God. They would see him coming in the clouds of heaven. He is telling the truth, but they refuse to listen. Now Mark also clarifies for us that uh, the mocking cry for him to prophesy, we don't get this from Matthew, we kind of wonder why is he saying prophesy when he just saw them hit them across the face. But Mark tells us that they had blindfolded him. He couldn't see. And so that's why they were saying prophesy uh, who struck you. And um, it was tremendous humiliation. 
So next we come to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now you notice that Peter is mentioned in three of these Gospels. I keep skipping that part because David will bring uh, that to our attention next week. Uh, Luke 22, 63 says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. You know, I want to tell you this. As brutal as this is, as, as tough as it is to read this and hear about this, this is in direct fulfillment of the scripture. Uh, the psalmist prophesied of Jesus, For your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. Isaiah wrote about him and said, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And in Acts 8.33 we read, In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Peter writes that Jesus did not sin, even in this circumstance. And that's what Peter is actually writing about. He did not sin. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Paul writes, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The second trial ended, and by law, as I mentioned, the entire body of religious leaders was to adjourn for 24 hours so they could deliberate and come back together after a night passed. They were to vote individually on the charges, and like I said, a unanimous vote for death really meant an acquittal. But only a few hours went by, and by the time the sun rose, they met again to unanimously condemn the Lord Jesus Christ to death. What were the charges against Jesus? Ultimately, he was being charged for being who he is. He was being charged for being God. That's who he is. And they condemned him for that. So now we come to the third religious trial, and that's found in uh, Mark 15, verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. The reason they're doing this is because they cannot proceed any further. They can't crucify him, but the Romans can, if there are proper charges. Uh, in uh, Luke 22, verse 66, we read, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? 
So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The final religious trial underway, they're all gathered together. If you're the Christ, tell us. And he basically answers them, does it really matter? Is it going to change your mind? Are you going to come to a different conclusion? Are you going to set me free? No. But it is, as you say, I am the Son of God. It didn't matter what he said, really. He had already told them, and they didn't believe. He had already demonstrated that he is God for three years, and they didn't believe. They weren't looking for the truth. They were looking to condemn him and put him to death. Once again, he emphasizes that they would next see him sitting at the right hand of God in power. And so they asked him a point blank question. Are you then the son of God? He confirmed, you rightly say that I am. And with that, they condemned him and took him to the civil authority. So we will get to the civil trials uh, in a couple of weeks. But for right now, that's the end of the religious trials. So in preaching, one of the things you always look for as a preacher is, what application can I make from this to you? You're not Jesus. You're not dying for sinners. Is there any application we can take from this at all? And I want to suggest that there are several things that we can take away from this. First of all, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it talks about Jesus humbling himself and being obedient to death, even death on the cross, that, chap- that, that portion of Scripture actually starts like this. Let this mind, what mind? The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about there? The whole section of scripture there is talking about the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ as he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. If Jesus humbled himself to die for you, can you not live in humility as well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. The blessing of God comes to those uh, who bless, who, who uh, love others even though they hate you and exclude you and revile you. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I'm telling you, when you think about what the Lord Jesus Christ went through, just in the trial so far, he is living out what he taught. One of the greatest accusations against many preachers today is that they're hypocrites. They speak a good line, but they don't live like they speak. Jesus taught others to love their enemies 
to turn the other cheek. And that's exactly what he is doing in this great trial uh, that we have just read about. Jesus says, pray for those who despitefully use you. And we see, we'll see this later, on the, from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus lived out what he taught. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 38, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus did that literally. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. There are some great takeaways from this section. Finally, I want to leave you with this final section in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Peter asked the question, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In a sense, you get what you deserve if you've done something wrong. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. What you see Jesus do here in these trials is, is the behavior he expects from you and me as we face trials for his sake, that we should turn the other cheek, that we should go the extra mile, that when we are reviled, that we don't revile again against those who speak evil against us, and to be like what Jesus was like from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. How do you deal with a person who loves his enemies? That's what, how Jesus wants us to respond. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you went through for us. We thank you for not only what you taught, but how you lived and how you died for us. Lord, we thank you that you did not shy away from the beating and the mocking and the uh, trials that you went through and finally the cross for us. We thank you that you went to the cross to pay for our sins in full. Thank you for your substitutionary death for us. Lord, we thank you that you have left us a pattern, an example for us to follow. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the uh, ability to live as you lived. And Lord, help us that we might love our enemies, do good to those who are evil against us, and that we might be blessed by doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.